Frank Matthews, the one who got away. Frank Matthews has managed to stay a free man for several decades. Also known as Black Caesar, Frank Matthews helmed a drug empire that spanned the United States. This is his story. Matthews was born towards the end of World War II in Durham, North Carolina. His mother died when he was four years old and he was raised by his aunt, Marzella Steele, the wife of a Durham police lieutenant. Nicknamed Pee-wee, Matthews was described as bright and curious, nevertheless, he dropped out of school in the seventh grade. He served a year for assault in the juvenile reformatory at Raleigh. On his release, he moved to Philadelphia, where he worked as a numbers writer. He was arrested in 1963 and avoided conviction by agreeing to leave Philadelphia. He moved to the Bedford-Stuyvesant area of New York City and became a barber, collecting numbers as he had in Philadelphia. Matthews was now large and muscular, he became both a collector and an enforcer. This gained him the experience and cash he needed to enter illegal drug dealing. Matthews quickly grew tired of the numbers game after realizing that what he made in a year could be made in weeks in the drug business. He began making plans to transition into the heroin business. In the early 1960s, the main supply of wholesale heroin was the Italian mafia. Matthews knew he would have to gain favor with someone connected to get a steady, reliable connection from which to base his drug empire. Matthews was able to not only approach but gain an audience before the Gambino family and Bonanno family, both part of the five families that have controlled organized crime in New York City since the 1930s. However, both turned the young Matthews down. From his days in the numbers game he knew of Spanish Raymond Marquez, a prolific Harlem numbers operator. Marquez put him in contact with El Padrino, the New York Cuban mafia godfather Rolando González Núñez, a major Cuban cocaine supplier, shortly before González fled to Venezuela because of an upcoming indictment in the United States. Before fleeing, González sold Matthews's first kilo of cocaine for $20,000 with a promise to supply more in the future. This relationship would expand into a very lucrative and expansive drug trafficking network. Gonzalez began sending the young drug dealer large loads of cocaine and heroin from South America at fair prices. Matthews expanded on this end, within a year, was one of the major players in the New York drug business. Realizing the need for diversification, Matthews would continually seek out new sources of supply for narcotics willing to do business with anyone as long as the product was sufficiently pure. By the early 1970s, the Matthews organization was handling multi-million dollar loads of heroin. According to the Drug Enforcement Agency, Matthews controlled the cutting, packaging, and sale of heroin in every major East Coast city. For example, in New York he operated two massive drug mills in Brooklyn, one located at 925 Prospect Place, nicknamed the Ponderosa and the other at 106 East 56th Street. Both locations were heavily fortified and secured, with walls reinforced with steel and concrete and protected by guards with machine guns. Besides controlling the retail sale of heroin, the organization supplied other major dealers throughout the East Coast with multi-kilogram shipments for up to $26,000 per kilogram. At this point Frank Matthews started drawing the attention of crews around New York and Philadelphia who wanted a piece of his empire. This led to attacks murders, and wars in several states. Some of the most famous stories regarding Mr. Matthews involve bags full of money and trunks of cars just left there parked and untouched. Few dared to steal from Frank. The stories of Frank's generosity are abound. Many of the key players of the 70s in New York got their start at the hands of Matthews who would often supply them with the cocaine to get started free of charge. Many times Frank would give you product on consignment and then become upset when you went to repay him. Keep it if you were that broke were typically his choice of words. 
At Dyson Card Games Matthews would flaunt just how rich he was, dropping $100,000 on one roll of the dice a pop. To consider him a bank in a dice game was an understatement. Losing a million dollars on a dice game was not that rare for Frank, he chalked it up to the game. This same bravado and this same generosity helped insulate Frank from his foes, those who would cause him harm. It created a loyalty among the players of New York to not only protect him but also to protect their source of drugs. Even speaking ill of Frank could lead to being shot or kidnapped. Frank didn't really have to get his hands dirty, the streets often would take care of an issue for him, without his requesting it. To call him the king of New York would be appropriate and even the mafia understood this which is why despite them having an issue with his purchasing a home in a well-to-do Staten Island neighborhood which was the home to many among the top echelon of the mafia and their threats he went untouched and his family went unbothered. Frank Matthews openly stated, touch my family and I will drive an army down every street of New York wiping out your families. He meant it and they knew despite his politeness the darker side of Matthews would be very capable of doing this. At this point Frank moved around the city with some of the most attractive and elusive women society had to offer, women who simply weren't meant for a black man of his lifestyle but who were attracted to his power, his wealth, and his confidence. To say Frank lived large as an underservice. Mr. Matthews became larger than life, way larger than life. A night out for Frank Matthews consisted of buying out the club, buying out the most expensive champagne, and being surrounded by beautiful women and fellow players of the drug world. If Matthews walked into a club, everything would stop and much like a movie star the crowds would part as he walked with his trademarked swagger under the lights being acknowledged by anyone and everyone of note while others start and ask who is that? Nights on the town with Frank were legendary and his bar tabs were the stuff of myth. In 1971, Matthews invited major African-American and Hispanic drug traffickers throughout the country to attend a meeting in Atlanta. The Drug Enforcement Agency got wind of this and monitored who attended. It was the who's who of major drug traffickers, a testament to the respect Matthews commanded because of his vast drug empire. The topic of the meeting was how to import heroin without the mafia. Those present decided to build stronger independent relationships with the Corsicans and possibly Cubans. In addition, they agreed to diversify their product to include cocaine, which was becoming available in massive quantities. This gathering of major drug traffickers throughout the United States is significant because it represented the changing nature of the drug business. Whereas, previously, the Italians controlled the importing and wholesaling of narcotics, therefore controlling who could and could not advance past them, now others were establishing their own pipelines. Before, the mafia asserted behind-the-scenes control of the business while African Americans sold and used the drugs in their cities, now the black dealers established connections and took control of their neighborhoods. This later evolved to include not just black people controlling the business, but also local gangs of black people eliminating out-of-town black suppliers trying to control their neighborhoods from a distance. Matthews learned this lesson the hard way in Philadelphia. In Atlantic City, the Philadelphia Black Mafia killed Tyrone Mr. Millionaire Palmer, Matthews' main dealer in Philadelphia, at a club Harlem packed with 800 people. No one was prosecuted for the crime and none of the 799 potential witnesses came forward. Three of his top lieutenants in the city were murdered by the Black Mafia. In 1973, the DEA was set to arrest Matthews. He was arrested in Las Vegas, but paid bail then disappeared. Others say he fled the scene before the arrest. Matthews allegedly took 15 to 20 million dollars with him and fled the country, and was never seen again. When it comes to lifers very few have faced the kind of tireless manhunt that Frank Matthews has. 
Four decades later the authorities continued to hunt for Matthews, still chasing leads all over the world and still monitoring friends and allies. One would imagine that Matthews has likely perished by now, and some speculate that he was killed. His escape included $20 million in cash and a young woman who was a girlfriend that according to reports was pretty close to her family. The idea that this woman would never again contact her family is what has led to the speculation that Matthews may not have actually escaped but was double-crossed and his life terminated at the hands of associates. Thank you for listening to the Lifers Podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. New episodes will be up soon.